Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And today we have a special guest, Russ Kasler. Hey guys. So Russ and I went to high school together. And I don't believe we have talked since the 10-year reunion, which is going on seven years ago. Way to date yourself there. We're old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. Yeah, a little, little closer to the mic. Okay. Um, so today, what, what we're going to be talking about, if you haven't guessed from the title, which you already clicked on, uh, is PERS. And not going to lie, I was a little bit nervous about this one. So for those of you who have never run a podcast, I figure probably between... Two and five hours of preparation goes into each of these episodes, and then an hour to t- or two of editing on the back end. Uh, this one took a lot more than that. <laughs> I don't know how much time you guys spent on it, but... It's a clunky from, issue. Yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is tricky, and it is complicated. So um, why don't we get started with just some definitions. Uh, Russ, PERS, Public Employee Retirement System. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Good. It was. It was. Uh, <laughs> that was a quiz. You that, passed. <laughs> I feel great. Uh, so it was established uh, back in the '40s, actually, as early as I think 1946, and it was intended to be, you know, obviously a really good thing. Uh, we want to be able to provide a retirement for employees in public service, and um, and the original plan was humming along pretty well, um, but. Like all good things that are well intentioned, sometimes we 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 come up with solutions that are overly complicated. Or mm-hmm. We don't anticipate changes in the market or our own nature as humans to want to get the most out of our retirement, and and the result is a is a big problem for Oregon's general fund for not only state government but for local governments as well. For sure. So um, there are three four pieces of PERS: Tier One, Tier Two. OPSRP and IAP. Is that correct? Correct. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> why don't we talk about those a little bit? Can you explain a little bit about what each of those is? Absolutely. So I'll start by um, introducing some terminology that is familiar to people who've spent a lot of time looking at retirement, but may not be as familiar to people who are our generation or just don't focus as much on that. Um, the, the key things to know is that there are defined benefit plans and defined contribution plans. And this will come up a lot in this discussion. Uh, anytime we talk about a pension, that is a defined benefit plan. In other words, there's a set amount that um, that employee in retirement is going to get on a monthly basis or an annual basis. Right. So instead of defined contribution where I put in a defined amount, this is I will get out a defined amount at the end, regardless of whatever I put in. Correct. Uh, defined contribution plan, as you named it, is going to be more familiar to people who spent their life in the private sector. If you think of a 401k, right. that type of a plan where you put in a set amount every month and it will gain or lose money based on the performance of markets, it, it, that is what most people are familiar with. And, and there's a component here that is that is a defined contribution plan as well. We'll talk about that. Uh, so you, your listeners may have heard a lot about tier one and tier two and mm-hmm. either tier three or OPSRP as we call it, OPSRP. Okay. And those are generations. It's good to think of those as generations of plans. So tier one was the original PERS. 
version 1.0. And, and it is primarily, um, a defined benefit plan, a pension plan. Uh, it started out as a money match type of plan. So where employees would put a certain amount in their employer at the end, when they were setting to retire would double that, they would match it. And then they would get that as an annuity, a defined benefit over time. Well, early on, that wasn't enough money. It wasn't producing good enough results for retirees, the benchmarks that they were looking to hit. And so they created a formula for the pension, what is now referred to as full formula. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is a formula that is a set percentage times the number of years of service that that person puts in, either with state government or uh, other participating local governments or special districts. And for this is just sort of like a benchmark, but a 30-year public employee in mm-hmm. Tier 1, their plan was supposed to produce a, a pension around 55% of their final average salary. But it didn't do that because they left money match around. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> tier 2 came along because because of problems with money match. Tier 2 is the result of the first wave of reforms in 1996. So for public employees employed by the state or local governments after 1996, they are considered Tier 2 employees. And they had the choice uh, still somehow tier, of... Tier 2 sounds like Republicans in Oregon. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Way more than two tiers. <laughs> they uh, they still ended up okay. Uh, the, the formula for them didn't change. They did raise the age uh, of retirement eligibility and that money match thing. Well, so in Tier 1, they, the states, uh, the state government and local governments guaranteed a rate of return on the investment. So that was in tier one as well, right? Yes. Okay. That is tier one. Oh, so, okay. So the Sorry. main change in tier two is that they no longer guaranteed that rate of return. Uh-huh. And, and it varies between roughly seven and eight percent. Right now it's at 7.2 percent. But you can imagine if you pay attention to markets, not every year is the market. So it's tough to secure that kind of a return on an annual basis. It's and very difficult. In like 2008, when the market was down 40 percent, PERS was up 7. <laughs> PERS retiree <laughs> benefits were up 7%, but obviously right. the fund lost 27% of, of its value. Yeah. And and that is why we get to a really big problem uh, for for budgets, for, for state and local governments. Right. So the, the fund was down that much. Retiree benefits were still level to up, which that big delta then becomes our unfunded liability. Correct. And or covered by taxpayers. That's another great term that gets thrown around a lot and and listeners get to know. The UAL is the unfunded actuarial liability. All you really need to know about that UAL is it's the money that actuaries, the people who run these uh, pension plans, when they look at life expectancies and what is what people are expected to be owed in their retirement plans. That's a big, that's, that's what the fund doesn't have. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not prepared to handle that much money. And, and when it's a little bit, it's fine because a lot of these things aren't owed out for another 20, 30, 40 years. But when it gets to be too big, we have to start backfilling that unfunded actuarial liability sooner rather than later. And that's what's happening in budget cycles in Oregon. So can I just correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the UAL, the unfunded actuarial liability is the difference between what it is estimated that the net worth of the fund is now and what the net worth of the the liabilities is now. Correct. Right? But it's also 
if I, if I remember right, it's tricky because when using a essentially guess at what the future is going to look like to determine what the liabilities are now. And when we use the current discount rate of 7.2%, you get one number, which creates, I think, a $26.6 billion deficit that we've got right now. But it's if a big you number. Look, but <laughs> if you look in, in more closer to reality, maybe you use 7% or 6.5, or I think the last 10 years it's been 6.2 is the average. That number jumps from $26.6 billion to 30, 40, 50 billion dollars that the state is on the hook for. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's going to depend on a number of factors. When you're looking out that far, you figure you, they have to make guesses about how well the market's going to perform relative to that number, how long beneficiaries are going to be alive, right? How long they need to be paying out these pensions to both beneficiaries and their dependents, eligible dependents. And that number fluctuates because those factors, those conditions change all the time. So if you read articles about this, you'll see different numbers quoted. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with their that particular author expects the rate of return to be. All right. So we talked tier one and tier two. So tier tier one is anyone hired before January 1996. Tier two is between if you're hired between January 1996 and 2003. And then OSERP? OSERP? OSERP. Say that five times fast. <laughs> OPSERP. Um, so that is for people hired after August 2003. Yeah, those are the schmucks like me. Right, right. And <laughs> yeah, right. Um, basically anybody in our generation. Because we, we graduated from high school in 2002. Yeah, I Again, guess you could technically be... Dating ourselves. but A graduate of Mountain View High School in Bend, <laughs> Oregon, and, uh, and be a tier, tier two, two employee, but you'd have to be uh, pretty good about getting a job right out of high school. Right, exactly. So what's so just looking at this this thing that I had printed out, OPSERP is a lot of... There's a lot of NAs on this, whereas tier one yes. and tier two have things next to those... They changed the formula. That's mm-hmm. one of the big things. So now for someone like me, if I stayed in state service for 30 years, it's the, the formula is 1.5% times years of service. So 45% of my final average salary, still good, but definitely not on the, on the level of tier one or tier two. And the money match individual accounts that they had before are gone. They've been replaced instead by something that sounds very similar, the IAP, Individual Account Program, and that is a defined contribution plan. So a lot of times you'll hear about the state's 6% pickup, and that means that traditionally the state or local governments contribute 6% of the employee's salary into a different account, the IAP, that earns interest traditionally like a 401k. And that doesn't have guaranteed rates of returns. It's just straight market performance. So someone like you would actually have both the pension. Yes. Okay. Correct. And interesting. That could create a problem too, and we'll talk about that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So we there's a lot of problems that are going to come up <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> so just a little bit of history here um, for the listeners who aren't who don't know Nick and I personally. Um, we met uh, volunteering for for Newt Bueller, and one of Newt's big platforms was reforming PERS, and so this is something that we've at least had on our radar for a long time. Turns out that, that Russ is a sort of an expert on this, so it worked out well. Uh, so we've talked about the unfunded liability. How about Bilotti payments? Are you familiar with that term? Yes, absolutely. Well, a lot of people, I mean, anytime you've got a problem like this that creates a burden on services that people rely on, things like education, public safety, healthcare, human services, people are going to look for 
who's responsible. And they're going to look at some flashy examples first. Right. So, so Mike Bellotti, for those who don't know, was a longtime coach at the University of Oregon for their football, football program. Yeah. Yep. Uh, go Ducks. And, <laughs> go Ducks. Um, go Ducks. As, as the guy who married a beaver in this podcast. <laughs> go Beavs. Ah, oh, there's gotta we won be the one. Civil War like three years ago. Hey, you're, you're from Pittsburgh. Go you're doing, you're doing great, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so, so Mike Bellotti, longtime state employee. Yes, higher education, uh, employees, including coaches are considered public employees for PERS. He has a lot of uh, years of service. He has a very high final average salary. And so at the end of the day, he gets north of what, $45,000 a month? A month. In PERS. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of money. It's a good <laughs> chunk of change. He's not the highest though. The highest is the former head of OHSU who is upwards of $70,000 a month. That's correct. So I don't have the actual numbers on this, but I, but I think it's like 76. Even. Is it 76? Yeah. Regardless, the, the point being though, while these are flashy headlines of, you know, one public employee making, you know, more than the average salary in Oregon per month, it's, Getting rid of those is not going to really move the needle. No. And, and I've ran some numbers. So uh, for, for your listeners, Oregon Live has a great data set of all current PERS beneficiaries. And if you look, only 757 of the current 129,544 <laughs> PERS recipients earn more than $10,000 per month. So that's that's 0.6% of current beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. That's not really the root problem. It's we, not going to get at your $25 billion liability. It's not going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Obviously you don't like to see those numbers. Right. You can, you, there's questions of equity and, and whether or not that's a responsible, um, <laughs> uh, expenditure for, for the state's, uh, pension system. But at the end of the day, that's not the problem. When you look instead at people who are making more than they did when they were working, that's when you start to get into some of the problem. Right. So, we mentioned the formulas at the end of the day, PERS was meant to pay out between uh, 55 and 75% of a person's final average salary in retirement. That's what it was meant to do. And, you know, if you look at what retirement experts recommend, when you combine that with social security, that's a very safe fixed income for a retiree. And that's reasonable. So as, as a veteran, you know, if you put in 20 years in the military, it's 50% of your salary. If you put in 30 years, it's 75%. So that's that's right in line with what career military soldiers will make. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, in, the, in the data set that I combed through, at least 28,000 current recipients earn 100% or more of their final average salary. That's 21.7% of all beneficiaries. And now can I ask is I would assume that the lion's share of those folks are the tier one employees yes. who are maybe worked from like the seventies to the nineties and retired just before that ninety six cusp or something. Yeah, or they or they were still working but retired between two thousand and two thousand and five or so, okay. you know, bef right before the the market crashed a second time in 2008. Mm -hmm. And that's because they were guaranteed great returns in lean years. And then in years where the market did really well, they made crazy boatloads. And then the state matched that through the money match program. Crazy. So getting partisan real quick, a conservative did not come up with this. 
Like this, <laughs> this was not a conservative <laughs> idea. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, make another joke. <laughs> Russ wasn't laughing. No, but. it's good. I am. <laughs> and for your listeners, I'm like the moderate Democrat. Right, right, right. Um, but, uh, but I mean, and this is one of the things where I probably, one of the issues where I buck with my party a little mm-hmm. bit, Democrats are reluctant to talk about PERS as an issue. You know, we talk a lot about the revenue side of things and what we need to do to backfill for the unfunded actuarial liability, but we're we're not very proactive in talking about things that can still be done to the program. Sure. Makes sense. So uh, another different article I was reading had talked about where we're almost getting to the point where we're having cash flow issues with PERS. Are you familiar with that? Uh, only a little bit. I okay. mean, I, I know that, again, post-2008, things got things right. got really dicey. So I'll just kind of talk high level because I don't remember exactly what we were talking, what the article talked about. But basically, in order to have these high returns, 7 8%, a lot of the investment is in non-traditional vehicles. So I don't know that if this is the case, but think, you know, real estate as an example of or hedge fund, that type of thing. Private equity. Private equity. Funds are kind of locked up for a while. Right. So that's the issue is that funds are locked up for a while. It's not like a stock that you can just go out and sell. So if we get to a point where this is bad enough, where not only we're looking in the future, even if we have enough money to pay, like on paper, have enough money to pay the the beneficiaries today, if that money's locked up in three, four year you know, in real estate, you can't just sell that and to pay off your your people. And if you do, you a lot of times take a pretty big hit. And so if we get to a point where cash flow becomes a problem, then it exacerbates the problem because now you have lower returns or negative returns. And now that unfunded liability, because you're looking at future returns of your of your portfolio, just drops and that delta gets a lot bigger. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why this has such an impact on on government budgets is because currently in order to make up for even just the short-term needs of PERS, the government employers are, are having to contribute between 20 and 25% of a person's salary on top of the 6% that they're covering for the IAP right. just to maintain the pension fund. And so we often joke in public service that, you know, we look at private sector jobs and what people get paid and they get paid a lot more. But if you look at the real cost of, mm-hmm. of what public servants make, it's not too different when you factor in that, that pension. I mean, it's, it can be considerable, um, especially if you're talking about people who make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. Sure. So this has been a problem for a while. People have tried to make changes to it, whether it's Oregon voters or the Oregon legislature. Again, you said back in 1996 was the first kind of reform where they moved from a tier one to tier two. Looking at some of these things, um, in 1994, we have ballot measure eight. I was nine years old at the time. <laughs> so again, eight, I'm dating myself. What that did is eliminated the 6% pickup by employers, eliminated the use of unused sick leave to increase retirement benefits and eliminated the guaranteed rate of return. So the sick leave, to what I understand, the way that you calculate the amount you get from your PERS benefit is you take your average of the last three years. Highest three years. Highest three years, which typically is the latest three, but could be, doesn't have to be. Yeah. And so what people would do, correct me if I'm wrong, is take all of their unused sick leave, all of their unused vacation in that last year and sell it all back. So their final year salary is artificially inflated. They use that as 
one of their three years of an average and then they get a higher yeah higher payout absolutely they would stock up all of their sick leave and uh and then it would contribute towards their final average salary they did end that but obviously they you know there's a, a lasting impact well they didn't for they didn't retrospectively right and this is where right they're where the supreme court cases come into yeah. effect for existing tier one employees they weren't able to do that but for people employed after 1996, they sure. were able to end that. So that, that gets to the next point. Yeah, in 1996, the court ruled that this violated the contracts clause of the U.S. Constitution, and all three of those were struck down for existing employees. Employees, yeah. yep, that's the word. So I'm interested you say that because one of Newt Bueller's talking points, at least from his website, was to get rid of the sick pay spiking of salary. So either either his website's confused He's, it's not, I don't know, it's possible. <laughs> he didn't win, so uh, maybe his website hasn't been updated in a while. But that was one of his, his PERS reforms was to... I think a number of people who have uh, tried to fish in the PERS reform pond think that we can try stuff that's already been tried before. And I don't know the particulars of, of Newt's plan. Maybe he was maybe he was thinking vacation leave because they can currently apply vacation oh, leave. Oh, that's probably what it is. Um, okay. But sick leave was ended for employees who were hired after 1996. Okay. Sorry about that. Bad radio to start correcting you. That's right. <laughs> but I was like, that was one of his things. So that was in 96. Um, another thing that they tried to do, so this is actually going back in time, 1992, they started taxing retirements. And then the Oregon legislature, well, the Oregon legislature is the one who started this. And then the courts struck that down as well that says you can't start taxing again back to the contracts clause that you weren't taxing before. You can't just start taxing. And so what they did is instituted a tax remedy of 10% for people to basically offset their income tax. If they lived out of state. If yeah. they lived out of state. So didn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> So the court allowed the tax remedy, but would not allow retroactive changes to any contracts that were already put in place. So 2003, Oregon legislature made changes regarding how benefits would be calculated, some amount, some of which amount to, to large cuts. And then in 2006, the Oregon Supreme Court once again struck that down. Uh, this is referred to as the Strunk case, if anybody is familiar with that. They did do a couple of things. There was, they they struck down the the recalculation, but they did allow mortality tables to be adjusted, and they allowed a recalculation of some of the tier one earnings, which had been erroneously calculated as being too high. So again, we're going. We've got this this recurring theme of people trying to make changes to contracts that were already in place, getting struck down by the Supreme Court, and the only thing being allowed is stuff moving forward yeah or a recalculation based on mortality tables and this this mistake where they calculated something to be too high it's like that's it yeah Those are the only things that have been allowed it's it's pretty it, the the supreme court has come down pretty strongly that changes to pers must be prospective in nature mm -hmm. they need to happen to benefits yet to be earned they can't touch benefits that have already been earned and that's tough. There's almost no way around that. Article yeah. 1, Section 21 of the Oregon Constitution protects contracts uh, in that way, and those are the grounds on which the 
court upholds those decisions. And Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution does as well. So it would amount to overturning decades, centuries of, of established contract, of contract law. law. Right. <laughs> so we can't do that. And the result that I like to help frame this up for people is imagine a snake that eats a really big meal. And it was too big for the snake, right? And not only that, but it's got like rice in it. So it like inflates <laughs> as it as it moves down the snake. <laughs> and really the only way that the snake clears that is through time and digestion. And in large degree, the PERS problem is one that's going to be handled through digestion. We can still make changes to the margins and there's still more changes to make. But no matter what, any PERS solution is going to involve some combination of treating the cause and treating the symptom, which means changing PERS for employees going forward and ensuring that we contain costs to the extent possible, but also increasing some revenue because we have to, or it will endanger critical programs in education and, and healthcare and public safety. Right. So can I, just out of curiosity, I'd be curious uh, for, for all of our opinions. But legally, we can't go after what has been contractually promised to, to tier one employees. That's, it has been tried in the legislature and it has been tried at the ballot box and it's passed statewide initiative and all the times it's been struck down by the state Supreme Court. Is that something that should have been tried in the first place? Is it even morally right to try to go after, maybe we use the F word. Maybe we say that those benefits were fraudulently calculated. Maybe that, you know, we say, because we've already gone back and said, no, you can't use your sick time. You can't, Newt was trying not to use the vacation time in the calculation. And those, the benefits were calculated with those numbers in there. So maybe we can say, well, you really shouldn't have calculated those benefits that way in the first place. Is it morally justifiable to go after those returns? Or is it just, even if however you got the numbers that you got to, that's there. And once it's, once it's in law, you, you can't go after it. I mean, I think it's fair to try to figure out ways that we can reduce the liability. And it's fair even to try some things knowing that it's probably going to get struck down in court. I, I have a hard time debating it on moral grounds. My own dad is a, a he was a retired teacher. You had him, James, mm -hmm. I think. Yep. Uh, taught for 28 years and he himself is a tier one retiree. He did not choose money match. He chose full formula. He's making 66% of his final average salary. So he's like, from a moral standpoint, he's like the good guy, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's his retirement. And so anytime I think about it, like it's hard for me not to apply would I feel good taking away my dad's retirement? Well, no, I can't really think about it that way because it's not just my dad. It's, it's this whole big system, mm -hmm. but legally, can we do it? No, no, probably not. Yeah. And the other thing is that these people who are retired don't really have another source of income and they may have been accustomed to getting these payments. And if you were to try to cut those down, I mean, I don't know, maybe you got a mortgage, maybe you've got something that's tying up that money that maybe you wouldn't have gotten into if you had a smaller payment and now you're kind of stuck. Yeah, legally, morally, I, well, legally we can't do it. So and <laughs> kind of a moot point on the fair point. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, um, I, I think the employees, current and former employees are currently benefiting from a poorly designed system. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault technically, right? right. I mean, it was... It, mistakes were made by state management and uh, labor bargaining groups. 
in the creation of these plans, and they they were usually negotiated in lieu of pay raises. So it was like the state taking a politically expedient route to save some money in the short term in a current biennia, but cutting off its nose to spite its face in the long run and, and indebting future generations and legislatures. Oh, we've never done that before. We've never done that. <laughs> First time ever. So anyway, a couple couple current efforts that are going on. Governor Brown's 2019-2020 budget, or maybe it's 2021, I forget, whatever the one they're working on right now, has an extra $100 million assigned to to PERS to help pay down this this liability. And so according to Oregon Live, it should, it would actually need to be between one and one and a half billion dollars to really make a dent. So little pieces, but maybe not quite there yet. The other thing, which Russ and I talked briefly about this before, is that Governor Brown is, is taking money by, that had been paid to the SAFE Corporation. And so, Russ, you're not able to talk about that. It's a it's a plan, but yeah, my my wife is an employee of Safe, so I wouldn't right. feel appropriate talking about it. But it sure. is there was there was a task force, and and one of the things that was considered, you can read in the news, is is that plan, right? So this is something that has a lot of the conservative people's feathers ruffled. They're very pro business, and so what the Safe Corporation does is it's workers' comp. So businesses in Oregon will pay into the the corporation. You have the workers' comp claim they pay out against it but it's this publicly i don't know it's a, it's a non-profit but it was is sponsored by the state or something like that it's considered like a, a quasi public entity quasi quasi public entity sure so anyway they've been they they're running a surplus and so now the government is thinking about taking that surplus and applying it to pers and so the business community is up in arms because this is a fund that they have paid into and that they get dividends off of uh, if it's overfunded. And so now this is going toward PERS. So I feel like, you know, maybe it's just me, but this is like, you know, when you were eight years old and you had a, you broke the handle off your friend's bike and your mom says, well, you have to go replace that. And well, you, you don't have any money in your piggy bank, but you just go and take the money from your brother's piggy bank. Like you don't Basically. see a problem with that, <laughs> but your brother obviously sees a huge problem with that. Right. And this is, it's, it, it seems like the governor, it's not new money that she's got. It's not, she found a wallet somewhere with a hundred million dollars in it. It's, that's also money that would have to be replaced at some point. So you're not, you're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. Well, but to the point we were making earlier, at some point we're going to need to get money from someplace, whether that, and that's, whether that's through tax raises or through borrowing from someone. There really is no other solution. The courts multiple times have struck down any attempt to renegotiate, recalculate these PERS benefits. Really, the only way to get through it is through is through paying them off. So, Yeah, I think there are, and this might be a good natural segue, but there are some PERS solutions that have been floated by the Oregon Business Council. Sure. And I think that Newt Bueller was also supportive of some of these options. One of them that's been talked about is essentially the creation of a, of a tier four, getting rid of the defined benefit pension portion of the retirement plan and limiting it to a more traditional 401k style defined uh, contribution plan, or at the very least, allowing employees to choose one or the other, but not both. And I think that would help. I mean, it's obviously, it's not going to make up the full gap in any particular biennium, but any, those are the small things that start to chip away at it and allow for the cost of the system to be contained. 
one of the other options once you once you're successful in containing the long-term costs is converting the unfunded actuarial liability into a bonded sum so you you take the 20 whatever billion that you estimate out you'll need and and you bond against it using the full faith and credit of the state and that at least gives a predictability to state and local governments for the amount they'll need to pay in any particular budget cycle so there those are some of the innovative ways that don't touch current beneficiaries plans in ways that we know are unconstitutional but can help right but now so for one question a bond issue is going to have to go before the voters right most likely yes what do you think the odds are that that would even pass? Because it, it seems like business groups or whomever has been able to convince the voters of the state not to continue to try to fund some of these lavish, extravagant, these crazy PERS recipients. <laughs> I think I think it would depend. I think if both parties work together on a plan that involved these types of reforms that to both parties assured cost containment – so that there were guarantees that this wasn't going to be a problem we would have to keep fighting or keep finding money for. I think then Republicans and the business community could be on board. It could, because it is this particular option is one that's being floated by the business community. So again, if it was married to responsible PERS reform, I think it would have a chance. Yeah. I mean, the legislature in this particular scenario that we're talking about hypothetically, the legislature would be supportive of it, but would it be referred to the voters? Maybe. And if so, would you have enough support from the business community to support it? I think you would. You probably Hmm. would. My personal two cents on this is I think I am a big fan of going just straight to a defined contribution plan. Basically, corporate America has moved away from pensions. There are still a few floating around out there, but big companies are, are all moving toward 401k type plans. And the the you could even make the argument that that benefits employees as well because you can take it with you. I think right now you have to, was it five years to vest? Yes. So if you work four and a half years for the state government, you walk away with nothing in your retirement plan. Yeah. Whereas if you had a 401k or sort of defined contribution plan, you take whatever you've put in, whatever your employer matched, and you take it to your next job, or you can cash out and take the tax penalty. You can do whatever you want with it, same as as anybody else. And in today's world where millennials are job hopping a lot, that might not be such a bad idea. Yeah. And I think I think the state could probably get inventive with that too. You know, one of the big reasons why the pension has stayed around in public service so long is because it's seen as one way for the government as an employer to hold some kind of competitive advantage Mm. against the private sector when recruiting because salaries are usually so low um, for comparable jobs. And so if they made that change, you would expect there to be either some commensurate increase in state salaries, which would be a budget hit early on, but then you know you'd be able to forecast that out pretty easily. Well, to what you said earlier, you're they're already what is it twenty five percent of the, yeah. the of their salary is already going to pay pers. Yeah, so gives it, you assuming just throw that back in there, right? Hey, assuming, there you go. Assuming There's the, your retirement. Well, so the problem wouldn't just go away. But if so, taking that twenty five billion dollar liability and pretending it doesn't exist for a minute, you could raise salaries by twenty five percent and still have your budget flat. Yeah. And in the intervening years, you know, part of that 20% would go towards 
paying the unfunded actuarial liability and part of it would be for salary increases and then yes once it was fully stable and you you didn't have it putting so much pressure on other budgets then it could be fully salary or you could come up with you know more inventive or competitive match scenarios but that's still a defined contribution right the, the state as an employer could match 150% of your contributions up to a certain amount. And, and even that would be better for them from a fiscal predictability standpoint than, than the pension plans we have now. Well, and I think that's the key, right? Is, is with a defined benefit plan, like what, uh, not all, but what a number of state employees have right now, especially state retired employees have now, that it is dependent in some or in large part on the numbers that were crunched by people 30, 40 years ago when they were assuming a rate of return on their investments that was wizardic at best. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what the best way to, to phrase that, but they were assuming something that was so far off that J.K. Rowling would have blanched when she read this first report. And they, no, that's, you know, Harry Potter couldn't come up with a spell to get you that kind of return, let alone just depending on the market. If you, if the move is to a defined contribution that you get out, Whatever, what you put in times however much it's accrued in value in the market. And at just as a, I don't think that you can speak for every state employee. And I think that uh, if we got all of them in this room, they'd, well, we'd run out of room, but then they'd also have a lot of different opinions. But do you think that if, to me, that is the logical answer is to move away from defined benefit to defined contributions, pay state employees a fair wage for lack of a better term by by which i mean commensurate with what they could earn in the private sector and i am biased because i'm married to a teacher so i that would affect my livelihood but do you think that that would be a a reasonable solution is to pay state employees a fair wage and say here is a way for you to contribute to retirement you will get what you get yeah i i think that would be perfectly fair and i think if we don't see some improvement in the short term with over time, what what the unfunded actuarial liability is to become, knowing that there are more and more tier two and tier three liabilities hanging out there and fewer tier one liabilities, if it still looks like we're in a bind, I say, I don't know what the reason is to keep the pension. And I say that as somebody who's going to have a pension, so it's selfish. Mm -hmm. But realistically, if you were to say to me, would you take a 20% salary increase to move over to completely to a, a defined contribution plan? Yeah, I would take that. Well, and that, and I mean, you, you know, you say it's selfish. I think it was a line on the West Wing. So I maybe it's one of those Aaron Sorkin things, or maybe it's actually true, but I think the line was more people who are our age and I'm, I'm, 31 i'm not going to age you too but like more people who are our <laughs> age done. believe that they're going to see a ufo in their life than see a dime out of social security and i would put myself in that camp i were paying into this i don't think you know i'm saving in my own 401k i don't think i'm ever going to see anything out of that and so i think to your point that that would it would make more sense because if the alternative is you know running this close to bankrupting the entire system and then obviously all of the retirees get nothing I feel like I'm in your camp on that one. So I don't believe there's actually a scenario where retirees would get nothing. This is something that Newt posted on LinkedIn because I, I follow him. Um, you follow they, people on LinkedIn. I, I do. I do. Um, <laughs> is it is it shameful to say that I do too? Do you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to well, get he, on this train apparently. So it was obviously a very partisan article talking about a zombie state or something like that, where basically because of this contracts clause, there is no way out of it. 
even if the state effectively goes bankrupt, you cannot actually go bankrupt. Or if you even if it declared bankruptcy, it cannot get out of these liabilities. And so what would happen is you would have, you'd have to collect taxes just to pay off the pensions. And so collect taxes, provide zero services <laughs> just to pay off the pensions because this contracts clause is so strong. Right. And obviously that's a very unlikely scenario, <laughs> but it, it underscores Fair. the point, which is, we've got to figure out ways to reduce the pressure on other budgets. Right. Because we, we've got a mission as a, as a state to provide, you know, the three core functions that come out of the general fund are K-12 education, some higher education, though that's dwindling healthcare and human services and public safety and corrections. Those three things make up more than 80% of the general fund. And anytime you've got, pressure from something like the unfunded actual liability to the tune of one to two billion dollars in a biennium that's one to two billion dollars that isn't going into classrooms or Mm -hmm. or isn't going to reduce recidivism rates uh, from correctional facilities or isn't going to cover you know seniors or disabled oregonians that's critical money that could be going to other services and be better spent sure so real quick, let's go through some of these persolutions.com things that we were, we were looking at earlier. I'm just going to cherry pick a couple of them. The number two on this list, again, persolutions.com, is correct the excesses of the system's older and richer pension plans. Basically recalculate. So we've already talked about this as being basically unconstitutional. Except for one scenario that they talk about, and this is kind of interesting. What's now, that? it's not going to do a ton, but conceivably... It hasn't been tested in court yet, but conceivably they float the idea of taking current tier one and tier two retirees and changing their formula for the prospective years they have not yet worked in public service. So you would have your 1.67% times years of service for years already worked, and then it would go to 1.5% times your years of service for future years until you retire. So these are for people that are currently working. Currently working, tier one and tier two, but it would align their percentage for their remaining working years with those of tier three OPSERP employees. Interesting. Now, bit of a dummy over here on Nick's end, but if if we're saying it only works for tier one and tier two, that's employees who started before 96 and before 2003 – are there a ton of still working tier one and tier two employees where that that's a surprising make... amount? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now tier one, obviously less so. That's twenty three years ago. Years minimum. Yeah. Um, I've probably just in my unit at ODOT, I have a couple of people who are who are tier one employees. Wow. Um, uh, I've got a couple who are tier two employees, and then the rest are sort of in my in my camp. But yeah, you'd be surprised. A lot of people went into state service, especially Gen Xers or somewhat younger baby boomers, went into state service because they wanted the security of it and especially like the predictability in retirement of having a good fixed income. And there are a surprising number of people who put in between 30 and 40 years of state service, sometimes never even leaving the agency they start with. Wow. It's a different culture than the private sector. And it's obviously different from quasi-millennials like right. us. Uh, a lot of Jerry Gergiches <laughs> is what you're saying. Yes, quite a, quite a few Jerry Gergiches. <laughs> Interesting. So the other thing that I wanted to look at is this, number four, give older employees the option of a work-back payback plan. So this is something along the lines of letting them collect while they are still working. Yeah. 
how does that not make it worse? <laughs> so I'll explain. Um, so right now, if you retire, uh, if you meet eligibility requirements, and you can start drawing on your retirement, and you can work for the state so long as you don't exceed half time, 1,040 working hours in a year. This says, let's make it more beneficial for those employees to want to work full time, but instead of paying their 6% into their IAP, let's take that 6% that we would be budgeting for that position and put it into the unfunded actuarial liability. And let's take the 20% that would be going into their, quote unquote, their PERS pension, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't get earmarked quite like that. And let's just throw that into the UAL as well. So they would get to work full time, which means they'd get to take home more money in the year. But the state would be able to take the money that they would otherwise be paying a full time employee like that for their pension and diverting it into the unfunded actuarial liability. So this is really just saying you're able to you instead of retiring, you work full time at a lower pay than you normally would have, but it's still more than what you would be getting if you were to essentially take your pension. Okay. <laughs> and the money and the cost savings to the state of of paying you as a full-time retiree versus a full-time person who is not a retiree when they would otherwise be dedicating those funds to a new person's retirement account that money instead goes to, towards the unfunded actuarial liability. So for the listeners who can't see us right now, for me and James's <laughs> faith, there's the gif of Zach Galifianakis from Hangover with the numbers are coming down over his face. That's what we're, we're trying to work through this now. I, I'm trying to figure out why anyone would go for that. Hey, you can continue working at a lower salary. But it's not for them. It's not a lower salary for for that employee. It's the opportunity to work for an entire year and collect a year's worth of salary as opposed to half a year's worth of salary. Oh, right I now see. they're restricted to 1,040 hours. Oh, okay. So this lets them work a full year. And then the money that would otherwise be going, if that, if they were like a normal full time employee, they would, the state would be paying their 6% pickup, although Got most it. of that has been converted. And then 20 to 25% towards, towards their future pension costs. If you said instead, that person's not getting that 6%. It's going to the unfunded actuarial liability and their 20 to 25% is going directly to the liability for other people. It's better for the system. So it sounds like money comes out in the form of a retirement, somewhat retirement payment to the person in addition to the salary that he or she would draw. But more money is going back in that the state does not have to then wait to pay out. Correct. Okay. There we go. All right. Well, guys, we are out of time. So, Russ, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I I feel like I'm smarter. (laughs) That's better than (laughs) feeling like you're stupider. Yeah, maybe. I feel like I have a smarter person I can text Uh, when things come up. We'll see. Um, (laughs) Anyway, listeners, uh, you can find us on the web at jamesaball.com. You can search for The Rational Republican on your favorite podcasting service. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at State Over Party on both Facebook and Twitter. We'll see you next time.